Good morning. It's a privilege to worship with you and open the word uh, with you this morning. Thank you for your welcome to me and my wife and our family. Uh, we're glad to be here. So as you can see in your bulletin, the sermon today comes from the uh, letter of First John, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Uh, let me just read the text uh, before we go into the sermon. First John chapter 1, verse, verse 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, <clears throat> which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy, or your joy, may be complete. This is God's word. So one of the uh, most famous uh, known around the world Christmas songs, I know it's a little early for Christmas, but one of the er- Christmas songs is Joy to the World. As you know, one of the stanzas goes like this. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let all their songs employ. While fields and, flood, uh, uh, while field and f- floods, rocks and hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Joy. Joy is what Christianity brings to the world. Joy is what should mark a Christian. Is that what you think of uh, when you think of Christianity? Is that what you think of when you think of a Christian? If you are a Christian, are you marked by joy? <clears throat> In this passage, uh, uh, John is writing to his writers, of course, saying that actually Christian, uh, Christians should be marked by this joy, this joy that because he's writing, he says, I'm writing this letter so that you, you know, some translation says our joy or your joy may be complete. So he's writing this letter in order for his readers to have this joy, this joy that all the whole world will sing now and, and, and forevermore. This kind of joy, are you marked by this joy? You know, one of the things that distinguish between a Christian and a re- religious person is actually the joy of a Christian. You know, a religious person would obey God out of duty or out of fear. There's no note of joy in their obedience. But if you're a Christian, you know that your obedience in your life is marked by joy. and You obey God out of joy, not out of uh, you know, obligation or duty. So what is this joy that should mark Christians? What is the joy that Christianity gives you? Uh, let's look at, uh, through this passage, there's two things, what this joy is and how you can get this joy. So in, you know, in verse 1 and verse 3, uh, John writes, you know, we heard this thing from the beginning, this word of life. Uh, here, of course, the word of life refers to the gospel, the message of the gospel that was proclaimed throughout the Old Testament that people at his time, of course, now we have heard it, if it talked about throughout the years, throughout the centuries. And then uh, it was proclaimed to the readers, to, the, to those who will be reading John's letter and proclaimed to you. Now, this word of joy, I mean, this word of the, the gospel is what brings joy. Uh, it's helpful to think, uh, to think through a little bit uh, in this way, to, when we think about what this joy is, to think about, what this, first of all, what this joy is not. Uh, Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers in the 20th century, 
uh, when he was meditating on this passage, talk about he's thinking, what, what is this joy and what is this joy is not? He's saying this joy is uh, there are a lot. Of, he says there are a lot of false joys out there. Uh, one of them is a happy feeling. He says joy is not really the happy feeling. You know, we can feel happy uh, with a delicious meal when you read a great great book. Uh, when you watch a uh, sports game, uh, you, you can feel really happy, and that's great. But he says that's not really the joy John is talking about, because that kind of happiness does not really last. <clears throat> and joy is also not a product of your circumstances. You know, sometimes life, life is going really well, and uh, we, we, feel, we feel pretty good. We, you know, we rejoice that life uh, is going well. Sometimes life doesn't go so well, so the joy goes away. And, you know, one of the things uh, you and I can fall into is think, well, if only I can change my circumstances out, then I'll be happy. You know, if I can just get that promotion, if, if I can just get that career, if I can just get that vacation, if I can just get that spouse or <clears throat> this person, then I'll be happy. But Martin Lloyd-Jones says that's actually also not what this joy is. The joy is not something that uh, depends on external circumstance, or it's not something that, you know, as long if it changes, then we'll be happy. And he says this joy is not even just happiness in general. You know, we talk about being happy. And it's good to be happy, of course, but think about the apostles in the book of Acts. They, you know, they were thrown to prison, shipwrecked, persecuted, beaten, homeless, everything. And that's hardly a picture of a happy life. If you think of a happy life, who would think being in prison, uh, being th- uh, shipwrecked through all these things, hardships, would be? but they had a joy, didn't they? They had a kind of joy that is produced by this gospel. They had a joy that helped them, helped them endure, but not just enduring, helped them rejoice in the midst of their sufferings. That's the kind of joy John is getting at. That's the kind of joy that produced in the, God, uh, in the apostles. That's the kind of joy that you can and should have in this Holy Spirit. So what is this, what is this joy? Um, it, it can be defined like this. This joy is a deep assurance of God's love for you in Christ that is produced by the gospel and is enjoyed in fellowship with God and his people. It's a deep assurance of God's love for you in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, that's uh, produced by the gospel, but also enjoyed uh, with, in fellowship with God and his people. So it's, let's think about this for just a little bit. It is produced by the gospel. Uh, in verse 4, uh, as we have said, you know, John says, I'm writing to you this letter. I've proclaimed to you the gospel. Now I'm writing to you this letter so that your joy may be complete. Uh, and then uh, the, uh, here, uh, the gospel is uh, characterized as the word of life. You know, the word of life about the life, about Jesus Christ himself. And John says that this gospel produces a joy in you, like we just talked about. So let's think for a second, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel is that you and I are unable to save ourselves. We're in captivity we're under the dominion of darkness and sin. And God has come in Christ to live and die and rise again for you and for me. Not because anything that we have done or can do, but because of what he's done, because he's great love for you. And the gospel does not only uh, mean that Jesus has died and rose for you, it also means that he brought you into fellowship with God himself. And he says, indeed, our fellowship is, is with Father and the Son. In the gospel, 
you are not only saved from your sin, which is great news. I mean, we cannot save ourselves, but you are also brought into fellowship with God, which means that God looks at you now in Christ as one of his children, as a daughter and a son of God. The Father, the creator of the universe, in Christ looks at you as one of his beloved children. I came to the United States when I was 17 uh, to live with a host family, as you know, as a foreign exchange student. And the husband of the family had taken me in and really treated me like one of his children. He would often uh, spend a lot of time with me, uh, as he would with his children. He would talk with me for a long time. He will actually stand up for me uh, in things that, you know, if, if, I, if I'm sad or he will. And all of this he's done not because I, I'm related to him, not because I've done anything. I just showed up at his doorstep. He didn't even know me. I mean, I came from China, all, a world. And, but he loved me like one of his own children. And, you know, when I, had, when I was going through hard times, as we all do, I often look back uh, to his love for me, which is still ongoing today. I still call him my dad, actually. And I, I, I think of his love, think of how he treated me as one of his sons and daughters, and think about how that would help me, you know, in hard times. Well, why would I worry? Why would I, why would I uh, be disappointed if someone loves me this much? They can love me this much. He didn't even die for me. God. He just loved me like one of his children. And think about if, if the God of the universe loved me so much that he treated you as one of his children. And he did not only do that, he, he sent his son to die for you. That love will never, never end. And think about if you have a hard time, if you're suffering, and life brings many sufferings. If you're suffering, if you're going through a hard time, think about the gospel. Think about what it means to be a son and a daughter of the Father, of God himself. And think, think about how that can help you. Why? Of course we'll weep. It doesn't mean we don't, this joy doesn't mean we don't ever weep, we don't ever get angry at injustice, no. But it doesn't mean that underneath all of that, you have this deep assurance that you are loved by God and that nothing in this life can take that away from you. Nothing in this life can take you away from God himself because he has got hold of you in Christ. And that now you in him, you can have this joy, a deep, deep, enduring joy that does not, it's not a happy feeling, you know. It's not just a simply happy feeling you get from, you know, watching a great movie or reading a great book. It's not really... Extra, extra, external circumstances because, as you know, our circumstances change all the time. But it's something that you have in you. You have something that's so assured that when you, look at, when you look at your life, you say, yes, I'm weeping. Yes, I'm hurt. Yes, this person had wronged me. Yes, I didn't get the promotion I wanted. Yes, my life is not the way I want to be. But, but, God has loved me so much that his son has died for me Therefore, everything will be okay. It will, it will be okay. Even if it's going to take a long, long time, you will be okay. You can rejoice. You can rejoice in the mix of your suffering, not just in the absence of your suffering. You can rejoice now. As hard as that sounds, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, you can rejoice now because your being a daughter and son of, the God, of God in Christ will never, ever change. So that's the joy. It's not a happy feeling. Uh, it's not changing circumstances. It's not even happiness in general, but it's an enduring sense of love in your heart from God in Christ that's produced by the gospel 
enjoying the fellowship with God himself that produces joy in you. So then you might say, well, how, then how do I get this joy? This, uh, you might think, oh, this sounds great. You know, this is a great thing. I, I, I want to have it. Maybe some of you are thinking, so how do you get this joy? And John in this letter had actually given us some advice on this. He says, you get this joy by listening to his word, by experiencing his presence, and by beholding his beauty. First, you get this joy by listening to his word. In, in verse 2 and 3, um, uh, here it says, you know, the life was made manifest here, referring to Jesus Christ when he came to earth, of course. And we have seen it and testified to and proclaimed to you uh, this eternal life. And uh, uh, John, you know, uh, all the apostles will say the same thing. We have, procl- we have a message to proclaim to you, which is this message of the gospel. Jesus himself, uh, uh, you know, now, what, what, is, what are we to do? What are we to do in order to get this joy? We're to listen to this word. We're to hear it by faith. Of course, uh, one of the differences between us and John is that he actually was there with Jesus, and he saw him, he, you know, lived with him. Uh, listen to him teaching. He did listen to Jesus directly. But you and I today can listen to Jesus by faith. And that's why the Holy Spirit is given to you. And that's why the Bible is written so that you can really hear Jesus speaking to you through his word, through the Spirit. And let's think about that for just a second. What, is, what does it mean to listen to his word? Uh, does it mean just listen to a sermon like uh, I'm you know, talking with you now? Uh, yeah, but it's not really, or does it listen just mean, you know, like reading your, yes, reading your word, but it also means something deeper. If you're listening to God's word, if you're listening to uh, Jesus' word, then it at least brings uh, two things. One is the conviction of your sin and, it, and the joy of being with the Savior. You know, if, if you actually go into um, God's word, you'll find that there's, there's kind of a heart condition that, that you and I are in. It, it, you, might, you, you might call it sin or maybe captivity. You know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sense in which uh, you are bound by a power that you are unable to shake. Uh, if you've ever driven down to downtown Grand Rapids, uh, you might have seen a statue. Uh, I can't remember which street it's on because I'm really new to the city. But the statue really touched me. It's a statue of a person in a cage with an open door in his back. And the, sta- the person standing in the cage is looking only at the cage and can't get out because this person is not looking at the door. He's looking at the cage and thinking, how can I get out? And that's kind of the, con- that's the condition. If, if you're reading the Bible in a way that's humble and li- really listening, that's the condition it says you and I are in without Christ. It's saying we're in this cage in the Bible called sin that you cannot shake. You're in this cage where all you can see is what, uh, the, all you can see is a cage, all you can see is sin, you cannot get out of it. Of course, some of you may say, well, I, I, I don't. I don't feel like I'm, I'm, cap- I, I'm captive, in captivity. I feel I'm pretty free. I can do whatever I want. What do you mean, what do you mean by I'm in the cage? Well, um, it's actually not uh, really true that if you can do whatever you want, that's true freedom. Because the world, and uh, as the Bible says, the world and you and I are under this power uh, who make, makes you think, yeah, if I can do whatever I want, I'm just free. But, you know, you and I were made for a purpose. Human beings were made for a purpose. We're made for this fellowship with God that John talks about. So that if we are not uh, in fellowship with God, 
we're kind of like fish out of water that you, you may seem free, but actually you won't live for very long. We're in that cage, actually. We're in the cage that we can't get out of. And that's the first thing that the Bible will convict you of is our captivity. is a, a sense that we're not truly free. We're not uh, really uh, the way we should be, even. We're in, we're in a sort of cage. But don't stop there. If you read the Bible, all you do is feeling really terrible about yourself. And that really isn't where the Bible stops. And that's not really where you should stop. If you read the Bible, you feel really guilty. Uh, some of you may. If you feel really guilty, man, I just can't do anything. I'm such a sinner. That's only halfway. Don't stop there. The Bible also, like John says, brings you eternal life. He brings you a savior. He tells you that, yes, you're in that cage. But remember, there's a door behind you. There's a door. If only you turn around and look, there's a way out. Because someone had opened a door. Someone had not just opened a door through a cage. Someone opened a door from the universe, came from another, another world into this world to get you out of that cage. And now someone, of course, is the word of life himself, Jesus Christ, who came into your cage and blew a hole out of it and says, now you can get out through this door. And if you really listen to God's word, if you listen to Jesus' word, if you really listen to uh, the gospel, then he will bring you deep conviction of your sin. Of course he will. That you will really see, wow, I am in captivity. I, I thought I was free, but no, I am not. I thought I was, I can see, but I'm, I was blind. But then he turns you to the door. He turns you to Jesus himself. Jesus himself says, yes, but there is help. But there is a way out. If only you will look at him in faith, by faith, and there's a door you can walk through to get out of that cage. To have this deep joy. So first, to get this joy, uh, we are to listen to his word. By listening to his word. To listen to the word to convict us and to comfort us. But also to experience his presence. Uh, Like I said just a minute ago, of course, um, uh, for the apostles, they actually did literally live with Jesus. And remember, Thomas actually put his hand in Jesus' uh, hand and side to see the the wounds from from the cross. They ate with him. They walked with him. They talk. So they literally experienced his presence. So that's why John here writes, you know, that which we, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You know, he says, we actually physically have been with Jesus. But, but how do you and I do that? How do you and I experience that kind of presence? You say, well, that's great. If I were only there, I mean, if I was there, I would, believe, I would really believe him. If, I, if he could just show up right now, right? I would believe him. I can touch him. I can, he's real. But how, do you, how, can you, how can you and I know today that he is real? And this is something that, remember, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, says that, hey, Thomas, you believe because you've seen. And blessed are those who have not seen yet believed. He says, the way you see now is through the eyes of your faith. You might say your faith has hands, your faith has eyes, has feet. Your faith can walk with Jesus. Your faith can touch him. Your faith, in your faith, you can behold him. You can see him. You can eat with him in faith. That, that's what the Lord's Supper is. You can rejoice with him, have fellowship with him in faith. That's what the, the community, community of Christian, uh, Christian is, to, to rejoice in, in, in months of others who are filled with the Holy Spirit. So in other words, in the Holy Spirit, by faith, 
you can't have the kind of uh, presence even better, you know, Jesus, even better than the apostles had. They had Jesus physically with them, and they still doubted. They still had filled with anxiety. Yet you can have this faith that look into Jesus and says, I, you know, I trust in you, that you're the one that opens the door for me. And now this faith, you know, that's why Paul, you know, in Ephesians, they praise that the uh, eyes of your heart will be enlightened for Christians. He's praying for Christians have their faith strengthened, in other words, the eyes of their faith open to see Christ. Even if you're a Christian today, you still need to train your spiritual eyes, spiritual hands, spiritual feet to walk, to, to touch, to look at Jesus Christ, um, and to, to get his joy. So you, you, how do we get this joy? You get this joy by listening to his word, but also by experiencing his presence. But uh, before I go on, I want to say a word about this, though, that uh, when John says that we have heard him, we have seen him, we have touched him, he's getting at something very important about Christianity in general, especially if you're not a Christian, I would like to say, John is here saying that the Christian faith, the gospel itself, is rooted based on real historical facts. That the claim of Christianity, everything about Christianity, uh, about creation, the fall, your redemption, and the eventual restoration, all of that is not a fabrication of a small group of people in the first century uh, world that try to gain power. They are actually rooted in real history. In other words, Christianity rise and falls with hi- historical evidence. And one of the, you know, one of the uh, uh, more well-known works on this is uh, Richard Bauckham. He's a New Testament scholar who wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he says that um, a lot of people of course, doubt that Christianity or even the, the Gospels in the New Testament are real historical documents. You know, it's easy to fabricate things. You can write anything you want. You know, you can get a small group of people together. You can just write a account of a life of Jesus, you, you know. But he says the New Testament documents, especially the Gospels, were way too early to be fabrications because many of the people who the Gospels wrote about were still alive at the time when the Gospels uh, were written. There are many uh, things in the Gospels that were uh, clearly indications of eyewitness testimony. You know, there are names named, uh, you know, that, that were really irrelevant to the story. For example, you know, in the book of Mark, the person who carried Jesus' cross is Simon of Cyrene. But he also, he also mentioned his son's names, you know, Rufus, Rufus Alexander. There's no reason why for their names to be there otherwise, other than what John, Mark is saying. You can go talk to them because they were still there. So the Gospels, uh, the New Testament documents, were too early to be fabrications, and they are describing real historic events. And, and scholars say that there's also no other way to really explain the rise of early Christianity without the historical life and death and resurrection of Jesus. There's, you know, there's, there's no other way to explain how a small group of Jewish people who never believed God can become, uh, God can become human would believe a guy claiming to be God and died and rose again for them and worshipped him and died for him. There's no other way to explain it other than they actually saw him. Like John says, we saw him, we see him, we touched him. There's no way for us to lie about this. We have touched him. And therefore, if you are uh, in doubt maybe today, maybe you are uh, kind of shaking your faith, uh, maybe existentially, 
in, in, internally, spiritually, emotionally, you don't feel the presence of Jesus, it's okay. You can look to the, you must intellectual side, to the historical evidence and say, well, I may not feel like he's real, but he is real. He did die. He did live and die. These people were there. They touched him. They saw him. They heard him. And they're telling me about him. So, you know, let, your, let this histor- historical evidence, let the, um, the actual reliability of the Gospels uh, help you in your, in your doubt, help you in your uh, disappointments. And if you're not a Christian, I just want to consider the fact about the historicity of the reality of Jesus and really to investigate, well, if this is true, if Christianity among all religions claim that there's something actually happened in history, it matters, then what's unique about that? What, what is, why is it that the, a, first, a small group of first century Jews would believe God became human and died and rose again? How, how, how did that happen? How could that happen other than Jesus actually did what he did and he is who he says he is? Okay, so how do we get this joy? We get this joy by listening to his word. The word convicts us comforts us, but also experiencing his presence. But also, there's one more thing that John says that we ought to do to get this joy, is to behold his beauty. In here, uh, in, in, uh, in these verses, there are two words used for seeing. You know, uh, here you see uh, in verse 1, it says, we, uh, we, that was from the beginning, which we have seen, and we touch our hands. And then it says, we have seen it, testified to it, uh, and then in verse 3, he says, and then we have seen again. Here, actually, um, they all translated seen, which is perfectly great. But there are actually two different words in the original language. One of the words used is the, origi- uh, the kind of more common word uh, about just looking at something, you know, just seeing. But another word, uh, theestai or theestmai, is actually a word that means more than just seeing. It actually means that uh, it's looking at something intensely and intently until the reality of something becomes real to you. John here is saying, we look at Jesus, says, yes, he's real, but we don't just take our gaze away from him. He says there's a beholding of him. Intensely, intently looking at him. You know, kind of like when you go to a museum, you look at a painting, you know, think about the Starry Night by Van Gogh or Mona Lisa, you don't simply look at it, just, just look away. It's a, such a wonderful, nuanced, beautiful painting. You look at it, you keep looking at it, you look at different facets of it, see the moon in the sky, see the colors in the sky, the steeples, the fields. You see everything in, in the painting, and you kind of look at different facets of the painting, what it, what it means, you know, what is artist trying to convey to you? You know, wh- why does he miss the color the way he does? Why does he paint this? Guy, the way he does, you know, in terms in, in Van Gogh's painting, why does he do the things that he does different from other people? And you look at it, you keep looking at it, you keep staring at this painting from different perspectives. You you get you, you get the background of the painting, you know, who Van Gogh was, why he painted. You, you keep looking at it, you keep looking at it until the painting becomes something that's so real to you. It's as if you're standing right there in the painting, you know. A great masterful piece of art can bring you right there. If you look at it, you keep looking at it, keep looking at it, and make it something so real to you, you'll be holding it at that point. You're not just looking at it. You're just saying, oh, yeah, that wonderful piece of painting. Let me go give me a sandwich. No. You, go, you look at the painting. You keep looking at it. You forget about other things. You forget about all the other concerns. You just look at the painting. You captivate it. You keep looking. And that's what John is saying. 
Fiesta is looking at Jesus intently, intensely. You look at him, you keep looking at him until he becomes so real to you. Until he becomes so real to you that you almost like you're standing right in front of him. Because he isn't standing in front of you by the Spirit. And one of the ways to do this, to actually look at him, to go intensely, intently look at him, is to look at the cross. Because on the cross, what, what happened on the cross is that even though we are now in fellowship with God, right? Like John says, you are fellowship with God, but we're not in fellowship with him. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he has done everything we've done. As if he has sinned, right? And as if he has broken all the laws of God, even though he didn't, he never did. And then he looked at you, if you put your faith in Jesus, says, I look at you now as if you've done everything Jesus has done, everything. His life, his death, and resurrection, as if you have done it yourself personally. And if you look at the cross, if you look at that, it says, now because of that, I can have fellowship with God, me? And then you keep looking at it, you say, well, how can he die for me? Why would he die for me? For me? We talk about, I'm in captivity. I'm under, why would he die for me? And then you look at, why would he live for me? Why would he live a life of perfect obedience for me? You keep looking at the, 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 the painting, as it were. You keep looking at the cross and say, he was there. He on, he's on the cross for you, for me. How, why? Why would he do that? Because he loved you. Because he loved you before you loved him. Because he took delight in you before you took delight in him. And now in, now in him, you know, we talk about this joy, right? We talk, but first of all, remember, in him, God rejoices over you before you take joy in him. He looks at you and says, I now look at you as the most wonderful person in the world. As you're the only person in the world. It says, I delight in you. If you gaze into that, if you gaze into the cross, you say, oh my goodness, how can this be true of me? How can God look at me and take joy in me? And in that moment, you have this joy. This joy that's beyond happiness, beyond circumstances. It's the joy that sings like this song. Uh, you might have heard this. What love, my God, could hold you to the tree to bear that overwhelming death for me? The Son of Heaven leave the Father's side. The healer believes the life was made to die. You look at him until that becomes what your heart sings. You look at you look, go to his word, listen to his word, you experience his presence, you behold his beauty on the cross, and you say, that's true. What love, O oh God, for me? And that's how you have the joy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, in your word, uh, in Christ alone, by faith, we can have this joy, this joy that can endure all circumstances, can help us through life, can make us uh, rejoice even in the hardest circumstances. I pray that by the eyes of faith, by our hands of faith, you help us behold Jesus on the cross so that we may get this joy, so we may rejoice because you have rejoiced in us in Christ first. In Jesus' name.